Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This is the fourth episode in a series of podcasts that celebrate the burgeoning quantum science and technology sector. This week, we look at the current and potential impacts of quantum technologies on cryptography. The rapid development of quantum technologies is forcing a rethink of how we exchange information in a secure manner. To talk about the threats and opportunities in cryptography brought by quantum computers and quantum communication systems, I'm joined down the line from New York City by Chris Schnabel, who is Vice President of Product at Crypt. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to have this conversation and, you know, have some fun along the way. Good stuff. So, so before we get into the, the nitty gritty of, of, of the, I suppose, the challenges and opportunities that quantum technologies bring, c- can you just give us a, a very simple explanation, if possible, uh, of how uh, a conventional or classical cryptography system works? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So typically, you've got three major goals in security, confidentially, or confidentiality, uh, integrity, and availability. So when you're thinking about confidentiality, that really means that only intended readers should be able to read something. Uh, integrity is that something is, is trustworthy and accurate. So that might turn into, you know, okay, I need to be able to do checksums and backups and, and those kinds of things. And availability means reliable access. And, and you know, that could mean on, on the one side, when you're designing a system, you need to think about like the, the infrastructure that you're putting it on, that it has redundancy. Um, but it also turn, translates into some cryptographic things like, well, you know, the, the encryption that I'm using, is it sufficiently performant? Um, am I designing a system where uh, like, I'm not subject to a denial of service attack or something like that, which might mean, okay, I need to make choices in cryptography that put more work on the attacker than it puts on me. You know, that's a general principle of make an attacker do more work than you. Um, So to protect confidentiality and integrity, you need to design, you could design something that's mathematically impossible to break, right? So you're going to look for problems that are computationally impossible for somebody to break. Um, or you could make some assumptions about what resources an attacker may have and bound them. You know, an example could be, well, I can make an estimate of how much compute power there is on the entire, entire planet. And then I could make a reasonable assumption that no attacker would have access to all of the compute power on the entire planet. Um, on, the, on the flip side, you also have to be wary of the future, which is, you know, if you made that assumption in the 1980s of, okay, I'm going to design a cryptographic system and assume that nobody has all the compute power on the planet. Well, you know, come 2023, it turns out it might be possible for an individual to, to have, you know, an equivalent amount of compute power to what was available on the planet in 1980. So you need to, you need to start to trade off you know, those bounding assumptions about what an, what an attacker may have. So if we, if we consider these security goals, confidentiality, integrity, uh, availability, um, and kind of like now, now flip that into, okay, well, what does that mean if I want to be able to transfer information? What do I need to be able to achieve? Well, 
I need to be able to establish identity. You know, if I want to send information to you, well, how do I know it's you? So I need a way to establish identity. Um, and then I also need to, to be able to encrypt the data that I want to be able to send, or at least make it so that I can achieve confidentiality. So if we're sending something over the internet, we typically say, oh, okay, then it needs to be encrypted. Another way to achieve confidentiality could be like lock it in a suitcase and carry it to their house. Um, but so we're going to assume, all right, if it's going over the internet, um, I'm going to need to be able to encrypt it in some way. Um, and then there's some other uh, more nuanced um, pieces to, to cryptographic systems, which I find, you know, some of them are really just intriguing. Like philosophically, uh, the, 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 the term of art is non-repudiation. Um, how do I prove I didn't send something? So if you receive, you know, whatever we're doing, we're, we're using signal and sending messages back and forth and you get a message from me, um, but it really didn't come from me. How do I prove how, you know, how do I prove using my cryptographic system or do I have a mechanism in my cryptographic system to say, oh no, that didn't come from me and be able to prove it down the line. Um, and, you know, some of these other more nuanced ones are, can I tell, you know, so if I didn't, if I failed to achieve confidentiality, do I know, you know, you can think of the same thing in terms of a, um, if I'm designing a, a physical safe. So I could design a physical safe so that it's really hard to break in, um, but I could also design a physical safe where it's moderately easy to break in, um, but there's some visible, uh, you know, some visible damage um, if somebody did manage to break in. Maybe there's a glass rod in there so that if someone forces a lock that that glass rod breaks and I can tell that somebody made it in. Um, and... And then, you know, you know, as I said before about availability, ensuring that the service is available can impact the design too, because you want to be able to protect against denial of service attacks and others. Um, and, and here you might be, you know, as you look at, you know, all of these different steps that I've been talking about often involve a lot of back and forth between you and I to establish identity, to, to, to do the encryption, um, to do that encryption step. It's, it's much faster to use what's called symmetric encryption, meaning we have identical keys and we can encrypt data with that identical key um, and then send it. And then you have an identical key and then you can decrypt that data. So this is an example of something like AES-256, where 256 is the key length. Um, but however, to get those keys to the endpoints, we need to use something called asymmetric uh, encryption typically, or at least that's the state of what we most systems today that we use like RSA. Um, and here, this is kind of a key transmission step. So I'm going to send you, uh, you know, I'm going to encrypt using your public key. Um, I send you uh, that encrypted symmetric key that's encrypted with that public key, and then you can decrypt it with your private key. So now, Okay, we've established key agreement. We both have the, the, the symmetric key on either end. And now we can go with the, the much faster symmetric encryption to be able to send data back and forth. Um, now, but taking all of these steps, um, and by the way, I'm being a little bit cartoonish about some of these systems. You know, there, there's often a lot more steps involved going back and forth. But once I've established identity, once I've done my key exchange, now I can, uh, now I can start sending uh, data back and forth. I might also have some ingredients in there like, oh, I, once in a while, I'm going to, I'm going to offer you, or if you ask me to do something, I'm going to offer you a challenge. 
um, to make you do a little bit of work. So now if there's a denial of service, then every node that's attacking me has to do a lot more work than I do to be able to respond because I might say, well, uh, okay, first do this computation for me. Um, so that I know that you're you're really willing to, to invest the effort in chatting with me, um, and then so these are kind of the elements of uh, uh, of the system overall. And so that's how I suppose that's the state of the art today. But what what are the threats um, to to such a system from from quantum technologies? Yeah, so so it really comes down to this this question of computational hardness, like the availability of compute to be able to do these hard problems. So uh, if I look at, um, you know, one of these mechanisms today in RSA is to use factoring, which has, it's very, you know, if you look at A times B equals C, it's very easy to do the product A times B. Um, it's very difficult uh, if I give you C, a very large C, if I give you C that's a product of two very large prime numbers and say, all right, give me A and B, that's computationally a very difficult problem for classical computers, right? The larger the number, the, the amount of compute starts to, to explode. Um, however, with a, with a quantum computer, factoring that number um, turns out to be much easier. So Peter Shore in, I believe it was around 1994, showed, oh, if I have a sufficiently large quantum computer, um, sufficiently large and possesses certain characteristics in terms of being able to, to process in a, in a fault tolerant way, I can actually factor that number relatively easily. Um, such a universal fault tolerant quantum computer doesn't actually exist yet, um, but we know Okay, if that if that system were to be built and somebody had access to that system, you know, in a traditional cryptographic system, I assume that my attacker cannot factor this number. And in the case of that public-private key cryptography, that was the protection. I was making the attacker do much more work than than was reasonable possible for them to do. So it would take them millions of years. Now, with access to a quantum computer, it's suddenly feasible for them to, you know, perhaps in a day or two. Uh, be able to crack that key. Um, and then by virtue of them being able to, um, in effect, you know, if they see my public key, so typically your public key, anyone has access to, um, and only somebody with the private key is able to do the decryption. Well, once you can factor, they could take that public key and actually derive the private key from it. So then they can decrypt whatever message is sent using that. Um, and because the, the, the message that we're initially sending is, well, here's the symmetry key that we're going to use to encrypt the data. Now they're able to decrypt that first message that contains that symmetric AES key, for example, and then they can decrypt all of your data. So that has a few uh, rather profound implications. One is, let's say an attacker watched us do this data exchange today. And they just harvested all of that data and they're just sitting on it saying, well, I'm just going to wait until I have a quantum computer. Um, if that's information where we really care, well, okay, if a quantum computer were able to decrypt in this future, like, would we care? Sometimes the answer is no, but a lot of information has time value where, you know, that would cause a problem for us. So then they'd be able to take their quantum computer. They have observed our key exchange, so they would decrypt that key exchange and then decrypt the underlying data. Right? So that's, a, that's known as a harvest now and decrypt later attack. 
um, that's of particular relevance prior to the arrival of the quantum computer. Though even after, after a quantum computer arrives, you, you have a very different set of challenges because it's no longer um, kind of a future hypothetical, then it's more of a real-time attack, um, which could open up new types of attack vectors. But that's the, so that's a series of attacks that's all about, I'm going to be able to decrypt the data. The, the other side of that is in identity, where, you know, if I want, again, I started with, uh, if I send you information, the first thing that I've got to do is make sure that it's you. If you're receiving information from me, you want to make sure that it's from me. The way that we typically do that is using cryptography to, to sign things. So we use cryptographic signatures that can be off of, you know, certificate authorities issuing certificates all the way down or some central route of trust that we both agree on um, that can slow that we can use to be able to, you know, create a chain uh, of trust. The the quantum computer uh, could also forge a signature. Um, so now once, and again, think, think the time stages. So harvest now and decrypt later, that's something that can happen today. Um, to forge a signature, you need to have the quantum computer during the, the exchange. So now I, if I have a quantum computer, I can, you know, pretend to be you, you can pretend to be me and that could cause a whole number of problems, whether those are men in the middle attacks or otherwise. The, uh, the other one, which I find this one, just honestly, I struggle with figuring out what to do about uh, in reality is if you look at things like public blockchains, a lot of the public blockchains, um, I should actually aside for anybody that hasn't read the Bitcoin white paper, they should go read the Bitcoin white paper. It's very approachable. One of the assumptions in the introduction is that no attacker controls more than 50% of the compute. So again, think if you don't think of this as like number of cores, but rather think of it as computational power, um, you could see where very quickly a quantum computer enters the chat uh, can become a problem. And in here, now if I have a quantum computer, I could forge the signature, I can effectively retroactively go back and change the blockchain. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, because the way that you prove that you've got the like the correct blockchain is that you've got the longest blockchain. And typically, the reason that it's hard to make the, lo the longest blockchain is that adding a block is computationally hard. Well, if I have access to compute that's able to you know quickly create the very longest blockchain, I can go back and, and forge things. Well, what can we do about that? Um, the, the very simple one is, well, if I'm dealing, you know, if I'm an enterprise and I'm using blockchain for different things, um, there's some simple solutions like, well, just make a copy, um, make a copy. And then later you can compare it to it because and say, well, no, that's not right. <laughs> and you just need to then make sure that you have the right kind of like legal underpinnings to be able to go back and uh, deal with that. But when you're in a, I'll just say like the philosophy of a fully decentralized blockchain and world without legal underpinnings, well, then you could be in trouble um, and you need to consider what that means, right? So, so those real threats to kind of sum them up, there's that of decryption, which you can see as a, the real-time attack once quantum computers are here or a harvest now decrypt later attack today. 
Um, and, and then there's the signature side of, you know, faking signatures and forging signatures. And Chris, you mentioned that, that today's quantum, quantum computers are not, are not there yet. And yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that there's going to be a lot of very difficult research that needs to be done before we get to this point. But do you, um, do, do you have any sort of estimate for, for when the quantum computers will be a threat to conventional cryptography? Yeah, I'd actually love to throw you a little curveball here. I'm interested to know what you think. <laughs> what I think, <laughs> yeah, well, based on you know, you've you've talked to some some other rather brilliant people, probably much more brilliant than I, and you know, have a good sense of the the overall industry and consume the popular press. Like, what's <laughs> what's your point of view? Um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, so I, I, health warning. I do tend to be a skeptic on these sorts of things. And, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm, not, I'm not I'm never going to say never, but I think it's going to be a very long time from now. I don't um, I think some of the you know, some of the technological problems are are very difficult. And yeah. um, I don't you know, I, I'm not quite sure when, you know, a, a usable quantum computer will get into the hands of of a bad guy, um, you know, let alone. Um, you know, being produced somewhere in a, in a government lab or by a, a large corporation. So uh, I think we probably got some time on it, but I suppose you know the I suppose the you know the, the it, it should work in principle, and um, humans are very good at uh, at overcoming technological challenges. You know, you only have to look at at Moore's law for proof of that. Um, yeah, I think, and I think that's where kind of sitting this on my own experience, right? So I actually, uh, so my background, I was in, you know, prior to Crypt, I was at IBM for 20 years. I led design rules development from 65 nanometer to 10 nanometer for the IBM alliances, which included Samsung, AMD, ST Micro, Global Foundries and others. Um, and we were up against Moore's Law and it, there was many times where we were saying, well, there's no way to get past it anymore. And then, you know, you'd keep working at it and you'd find a way. Um, even then, like innovation was required. It wasn't just a, an engineering challenge. I think looking at quantum innovation is required. It's not just an engineering challenge. There's some kind of fundamental questions. We have an idea of where those breakthroughs need to be, but you need breakthroughs. I, I tend to think that it's going to be like in the 10 to 30 year range, it's likely to happen in 10, but I am wary of how the broader industry is, is looking at this question. And, and what do I mean by that? So if you go to a conference and they say, like, we, we did a study, we asked 300, uh, you know, scientists what they think. And they say, and, you know, here I did a nice little uh, bell curve and there it is. The answer is 15 years. And so, you know, philosophically looking at this, the question is really, well, how should we answer this question? How do you plan for this? You know, one of the, the quips that I use when speaking with clients is the problem isn't that quantum computers are coming. The problem is that no one can agree on when quantum computers are coming. Um, so, so how, but how do you plan for this? Do you, is it a valid approach to look at the wisdom of crowds and kind of, you know, say, well, I'm going to be in the bell curve. Because there's also a lot of research that says if you go to the experts, you know, this is a foxes versus hedgehogs, right? A fox is somebody that has broad knowledge. A hedgehog knows one thing really well. The um, the experts tend to 
um, be much more pessimistic because they see all of the they 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 know much more about the problem, um, and they're much more pessimistic about how hard it is to solve the problem. Um, so if you go to the experts, it's going to be much too pessimistic. If you go to the wisdom of crowds, well, then you've got people that are just guessing. Um, people are inherently bad at predictions. Uh, but that said, you know, what do we need? We need enough logical qubits uh, in order to be able to, to break something like RSA and that enough logical qubits. A logical qubit is you know, a fully error corrected qubit that, that you know, behaves I'm going to say ideally, though, the, the quantum information theorists will be like, well, it's not actually ideal. There's still some error rates involved, but for, for all intents and purposes, let's call it ideal. So I'll need tens of thousands of those logical qubits. So to, to have a logical qubit, you need uh, physical qubits as well as some techniques that do error correction that effectively trades off physical qubits for logical qubits. So today... I'm also very wary of uh, talking right now because I don't I don't know when this will air, but next week is actually APS March meeting where a lot of the quantum announcements come out. <laughs> so I could very well uh, get get scooped and be proven or very obviously wrong on something. Um, but let's say it takes you know on the order of a thousand to to ten thousand physical qubits to make a logical qubit, uh, and. And that mechanism may be, you know, I have, I have some pattern of qubits that I use and together, you know, they perform some kind of computation, but they act as one error corrected qubit. So now that means I need millions, several million, tens of millions of physical qubits in order to be able to make uh, a universal fault tolerant quantum computer. But by the same token, I still need to be able to, you know, as I make those get more and more physical qubits and be able to do this error correction, um, I need to be able to keep, like my errors can't get worse the, the, the bigger I make this. So the, the system is going to get more complex, but I still need to be able to keep my error rates down. Um, so the innovation really needs to be able to come around, well, how do I do control? How do I bring, frankly, how do I bring the cost per qubit down? not just the qubit itself, but all the control electronics and everything that I need for it. And, and this is the part that, that always to me is the wild card is that error correction. There's nothing that says like, there's no mathematical proof or no proof that says that that error correction isn't a one-to-one -one ratio of physical to logical qubits. So that could skew the number of qubits that you need by four orders of magnitude Mm -hmm. which can like totally change the game. So I think for me, it's, it's that like that wild card is on the theory side of, you know, how you, you know, how you either do that error correction, other algorithms or approaches that you may need. And to do that, you don't need a thousand engineers working on the problem. You need a few brilliant people, um, you know, sitting, you know, very special people, uh, you know, some maybe sitting in front of a whiteboard, maybe by themselves at their desk, uh, really working through a problem, um, you know, perhaps for an extended period of time, um, that can develop some unique insight. So that's the wild card. Uh, if there is no great breakthrough 30 years, but I think it could happen in 10. 
So, I mean, t 10 years isn't a long time in the future, and I suppose 30 years isn't really. So what can, what can organizations that rely on cryptography do today to, to begin preparing for this quantum threat? And maybe some companies are already starting to prepare. Yeah. So consider again, the threats, right? So I laid out the threat model and the harvest now and decrypt later one is a today problem. Um, so I'll, I'll go so far as to say, well, for the infra, if you care that someone's going to be able to decrypt your data later, then you're already too late. Um, so step one is identify, okay, what is the type of information that we have within our organization um, that would fall in that category of, I'll just call it the existential crisis. You know, will my organization, you know, fundamentally be compromised? Will my organization uh, really lose lose its edge, lose its competitiveness? Because consider that you know, in the past, particularly nation states were were executing these harvest now decrypt later attacks for what I would call the games that nations play. Really, you know, intelligence community, national security, those kind of things. Now. Those same types of tools and attacks are being used to, to create competitive advantage. So, uh, you know, organizations need to stop giving away their competitive IP and they need to stop doing that today. So I would assert the step one is understand what it is that you need to protect, kind of do the quick risk Pareto and then, and then mitigate uh, on those, those first ones. Then you need to also think about that longer term uh, you know, that longer term transition, both into post quantum cryptography. Um, so I talked about the fact that, well, uh, you know, RSA is based on factoring and therefore it's going to be dead effectively um, because of quantum computers. NIST, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US, as well as other work going on, for instance, in Europe and Etsy and otherwise, have been focused on identifying what are the next algorithms that are going to be used um, to be able to replace what we're using today, in particular for key exchange and digital signatures. Uh, the, 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 and frankly, this is also why I left IBM was, so we talk about, well, we've got to move to these post-quantum algorithms um, that are now going to be standardized soon in order to protect against harvest now, decrypt later. But you also need to implement your cryptography in what's called a crypto agile way, meaning it's going to probably fail. <laughs> like someone's going to figure out how to compromise those algorithms and you're going to have to be able to swap them out really quickly uh, when they do. Well, for that real-time attack, like the crypto agility helps you to minimize your downtime, so to speak, make it so that you're not subject to that real-time attack. It doesn't protect you against harvest now and decrypt later because if you were and I were sending information back and forth based on an algorithm and we're transmitting the encryption keys that we're using to protect that data, if that gets harvested later, whether it's a post-quantum algorithm or not, and it fails, um, doesn't have to be because of a quantum computer, uh, then like we're toast. We've been owned. Uh, the, a great example is um, within the past year, two of the post-quantum algorithms have failed and I would say fails spectacularly. One of them was my favorite uh, paper title ever, which was um, Rainbow, which was one of these digital signature algorithms, can be broken on a weekend with a laptop. <laughs> 
Uh, and, you know, and that just gives you a sense of scale. It's not a quantum computer, but it's, we, well, we have this, this algorithm that we think is relatively robust and then somebody identifies a way. Uh, psych, um, one of these isogeny based, uh, key exchange mechanisms was broken and they showed how to be able to effectively, you know, with a, an hour on a, on a single core, I think it was, that was used to, to break psych with a classical computer. You don't need a quantum computer. You just need some fundamental and unique insight that enables you to break it. So, so you need to, you know, back to your question as an organization, you need to mitigate, you need to start educating yourself, thinking about, well, how am I going to make this larger transition? Um, but you also need to explore like how, like, all right, what, what time frame? Cause it could take you 10 years to, to do a full transition of all of your different information systems. Um, so you need to explore what are those technologies that I'm going to use? How am I going to implement that? How am I going to create my transition? Um, and, and, and start like, that's the, I, I'm, I'm one that kind of biases towards beginning something because once you start, you start to learn. Um, so you know, step one is start. And and Chris, it's, it's not all gloom and doom, is it? Because uh, quantum technologies can actually be used to um, to encrypt uh, and and send information securely. Um, th there's a, a technique called quantum key distribution, which I think is actually being used um, by banks, uh, etc. Can, can you talk a, a bit about that? How can you use the the laws of quantum mechanics to to send information securely? Yeah. So this is, um, you know, as a technology, quantum key distribution. It's just it's it's fascinating. So what you do is you can essentially say, well, if I have some uh, a, a photon, right? And, and I measure it's, you know, two orthogonal states. So if I, if I measure something in our orthogonal way, that means that measurement doesn't have a contribution to the other axis, right? Just like orthogonal is perpendicular. So you can think of if I'm trying to project something from an orthogonal state into my existing axis, I, I see no, I see nothing. So we see that you know, and a simple example is in polarization. So if I choose a way to measure polarization of a photon, um, that's fully decoupled from the, the other orthogonal axis. So if I now have a, a random state and I measure that uh, on, on one end, if we agree on how we're going to do a measurement, I can now communicate information, whereas an attacker, if they don't know, um, you know, all right, what polarization should I choose uh, to be able to make a measurement of a photon, it's just going to look like a random number to them. Um, and, and that's the really exciting bit is that um, you can now, you know, as I said before, there is this, well, how do I know if somebody, how do I know if somebody has detected or has actually been able to compromise my information because of the, the way that quantum works, when you measure something, you change its state, you, you effectively collapse the wave function. Um, and what that means is, you know, if I'm sending information and I measure and I receive that information, um, you know, we can, we can do some extra communications and say, you know, a little bit of round tripping. I need a little bit of side channel to increase, to agree on how to measure the state. 
we can say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, that changed in the middle. Somebody observed what we did. We need to throw away, you know, we need to throw away that uh, information that we sent, which is typically a key um, because it's relatively low rate um, in terms of bandwidth compared to what we would be using for, you know, regular internet traffic. So we tend to, to limit this to sending keys. Um, and, but we can discard that key and say, okay, we've got to try again. Somebody was obviously able to, to measure that, you know? So as a technology, it's really interesting. Frankly, practically speaking though, it has some limitations in that, um, that I have a distance limitation, which is, you know, hundreds of kilometers. There's some exceptions with maybe China has done some example where maybe exceeded a thousand kilometers. Um, but assume it's hundreds of kilometers. And then now I have to have some kind of a repeater. Um, and, and this is where it starts to get a little bit into the, you know, research technology mode, because if it's a repeater, I have to measure it. So now it's in its classical state. Um, and then I have to put it back into a quantum state and, and send it on because I, there's no such thing as a quantum repeater where it maintains its quantum state. So now if I look at this from a security perspective, that means that node, that repeater, I have to trust it. I have to trust that nobody is there and on it. And all of those kind of the security benefits of being able to say, oh, nobody was actually able to monitor this. Um, that's only valid for you know, all the bits in between the repeaters, that the repeaters themselves you have to trust. So, you know, QKD, again, you know, academically, I see it as very interesting, but practically you need this physical dedicated infrastructure. Um, you need to, to have these trusted repeaters, um, which, you know, the, the Pacific Ocean is rather wide. Let me just <laughs> say it that way. Um, you know, you have to be able to have these trusted repeaters um, and let's say, you know, I'm, I'm running a cloud service, um, and I, you know, I spin up a service in, in AWS or wherever, um, you know, I can't have physical dedicated infrastructure that goes all the way to this virtual service sitting in the cloud. And, and so Chris at, at Crypt, you've, you've come up with a, a way of, of dealing with some of these limitations in a, in a product. Can you describe, um, how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the what one of the things that I really didn't touch on uh, in all of this is all of these different algorithms, encryption algorithms. They don't, um, they just don't work, or at least they're not secure unless you have um, good random numbers. So, a lot of these algorithms they're seeded, and you're using random numbers to be able to do the encryption. If somebody can guess your seeds or guess the random numbers or have some understanding of the characteristics of the random numbers that you're using, i.e. like mathematically, if someone can guess them, they're not truly random. Then like all of the, I'll just say the, the mathematical guarantees of the algorithm itself do not no longer apply, right? They assume I have a certain amount of entropy um, in my random numbers. So now well, how do I get entropy? What is entropy? Well, if you, if you go and whatever, go to an undergrad computer scientist and ask them, well, what's entropy? You know, they'll start talking about, um, well, you know, how much, you know, what is the distribution of numbers uh, within a, a stream? You ask a physicist, what is entropy? You may get a very different answer. So 
What's important when I look at cryptographic systems is that if you give me a series of numbers, I'm not, you're not able to predict what the next number is, right? So if I look at the, the digits of pi, the digits of pi are random. However, if I give you a sequence of numbers, or, you know, if I give you pi and ask you what the next number is, you can go figure out what the next number is. Um, so that is not very suitable for uh, a cryptographic system. So I need a way to have good random numbers. And, and, um, and now if you look at a lot of the ways that people are using ran or creating random numbers today, I would argue they're not random um, in that there's not sufficient entropy in it. It's just that they appear random. And we think nobody has figured out how to, to model those systems. Thermal noise on, you know, whatever the resistor of a, a laptop is an example where you might say, well, this is a physical effect. I'm going to use this, you know, the variation of that thermal noise. However, you know, if I can, you know, if we step back and say, well, if I could perfectly model that system, would I be able to predict what's happening? Um, and, you know, the answer is, well, I could at least change it from a uniform distribution. So I'd get some knowledge. And now if we explore, well, what about you know, machine learning and the different types of tools that we have to be able to characterize systems. Yeah, now we're into dangerous territory because we could use machine learning to be able to better characterize these different sources. So the only way to get around this is through a quantum measurement, because a quantum measurement is the only thing in the universe that creates entropy. So that was a rather long-winded way of saying, you know, the foundational part of what Crypt does is we have quantum random number generators that we've built in collaboration with different research labs, including, uh, you know, using source components from QSide and Barcelona, as well as collaborative work that we've done with Oak Ridge National Labs in the United States. We also have an innovation roadmap with Los Alamos National Labs and EPFL in Zurich. And, and here, so we do a controlled quantum experiment in effect, but then also need to pay a lot of attention to the engineering of all of the classical circuitry around it so that we can characterize and know, all right, how much entropy is actually in this bitstream that we have, right? So the first thing that Crypt does is we're able to generate these random numbers. We have them in our own data centers, and then we stream them into the cloud. And based on a protocol developed by our chief cryptographer, Yevgeny Dodas, um, he's an IECR fellow, uh, International Association of Cryptographic Researchers. Um, he, so he's published this protocol that enables us to independently generate identical symmetric keys at multiple endpoints. So the benefit of being able to independently generate keys, you know, recall as we were talking about, well, how do we do key exchange? Implicitly, what I was saying was in order to be secure, you need a more secure way to, to transmit that symmetric key that you're going to use for the data encryption. And, and that's what everybody is doing. They're asking, how can we more securely transmit encryption keys so that we can do this? The, the NIST competition that I referenced is asking, okay, what's the best candidate to be able to transmit encryption keys? Crypt, on the other hand, is actually saying, well, the best way to transmit encryption keys is not to do it, independently generate them instead. And the way that we do that is we, we break the assumption that you just have to send information back and forth between your, the sender and the receiver in that we have cloud services available to us and cloud infrastructure available to us. So we take these quantum random numbers 
put them in these different cloud pools. Um, and now, you know, if Alice wants to communicate with Bob, Alice can select, all right, I'm going to sample from these five different servers and decide on some sampling parameters. Um, and then once she's assembled, you know, locally, then assembles all of those samples into a pool of quantum random numbers, uses extraction parameters to extract the encryption key that they're going to use. But now instead of sending the key to Bob, Alice sends the, the recipe for how to create the key to Bob. And what this does, um, Bob can now say, all right, I've got a sample from these servers, use these sampling parameters, use this extraction parameter, and voila, I have this identical key. Well, the, the, the benefit here is like, well, okay, but what if an attacker got this recipe? Um, the, the trick is we shred those pools of quantum random on an hourly basis. So any attacker needs to be able to decrypt that data within the hour. So in the case of a harvest now and decrypt later attack, um, if they're able to monitor the channel and decrypt that data, well, it's too late. Those pools of quantum random are no longer available, so they're not able to create the key. Um, and so the security assumption that we now have, so before it was, okay, if I want my data to be secure forever, the algorithm that I use to send the data and the, the you know and do this key exchange need to be secure forever. So we still use existing encryption to be able to send that recipe, but the security assumption that we use is downgraded significantly. Um, it's, well, we believe, you know, the assumption is that that channel is secure right now. For example, RSA, TLS, they're secure today, and it's going to be secure for the next 60 minutes. No one's going to crack it in 60 minutes. So that can mean there's no, there's no way to crack it, or it can mean, well, any known way to crack it would take more than 60 minutes. So even if I had a quantum computer, it's probably going to take me more than an hour to be able to crack it. All right. So, so crypt has these, this, uh, the entropy service. So you could just use a REST API and, and, and get entropy. But secondly, using our SDK, you can now just build in into any application with a few lines of code, the ability to do this independent key generation. You can just go to our website, uh, portal.crypt.com and download uh, that SDK and build it in. And okay, but why does this matter for QKD? Like if I, you know, if I have a key at the moment, Okay, and we can independently generate. That's great, but sometimes, you know, I have a key and it's sitting in a in a vault somewhere. But I and I need to be able to move that key. Well, so now this gets to well, how do I, you know, how do I securely move keys around if it could be harvested? Um, it requires a little bit of a little side route diversion, side channel here discussion, which is one time pad encryption is something that's information theoretically secure, meaning you can mathematically show that, you know, given a number of assumptions, I'm not able to, to break this algorithm. It, like there, there won't be any new math or more compute or different types of compute that could ever exist uh, to be able to break one-time pad encryption. However, one of the, or two of the challenges associated with one-time pad are how do I get, it's a symmetric algorithm, so I need the same key on either end. How do I get the keys to either end um, without ever, uh, without using a lesser form of security? So this is the same encryption that's used for like the red phone between the White House and the Kremlin. 
Um, but the way that you get the keys to the endpoints is literally someone like walks. I, well, I don't actually know this, but by by courier. And the part I don't know is like I'm going to say with a with a suitcase and, and handcuffs. <laughs> um, but it the the point is you need to you need to get it to the endpoints, and that's rather impractical. Again, as I said, for the example of a cloud service sitting on AWS or what have you. The other is that the one-time pad needs to be as long as the data that it's encrypting, and you should never reuse it. That's where the one-time comes from. So with, with Crypt, once you can independently generate identical symmetric keys, we've now overcome one of the fundamental obstacles to using one-time pad encryption, because now I could generate a one-time pad. Um, and the other little loophole is, well, man, I'm gonna send a lot of data uh, or I want to be able to send a lot of data and my one-time pad needs to be as large as that data. Well, what if I just sent the encryption key? Now, you know, like AES-256, now the one-time pad only needs to be as long as an encryption, like an AES-256 encryption key. Um, so what we've done is created this, this secure tunnel service where now we just have a Docker container that uses our SDK where you can route traffic to it. It does the one-time pad encryption by contacting the crypt servers, routes it to, to someplace else and does the one-time pad decryption. So now I don't have to worry about like, what is this, you know, where is in, in between these two containers, maybe it's getting routed through some foreign country. Maybe it's getting routed through, you know, some networking hardware that I'm otherwise rather concerned about because I don't know its origin or whether somebody has uh, attacked it. Um, and it provides some of these implicit benefits of information theoretic security. And, and earlier this year, um, Crypt teamed up with a network services company Megaport to, um, to demonstrate secure communications using this technology. Can, can you give us a brief description of that demonstration? How, how did it work out? Sure. So this was an example where um, so Megaport is really interesting in that it provides effectively networking as a service across um, 700 plus data centers worldwide. It exists in a few hundred different uh, public clouds as well, where you could provision a port um, in any of these two data centers and then create a, a virtual cross connect um, across so that you run on the, the Megaport network. But from your perspective, everything's virtualized. Um, we took advantage of their platform to be able to have access um, to all of these different data centers and any of the public clouds to be able to effectively deploy using Kubernetes and Docker, you know, these containers that I just described. So what we did was effectively show that you can create a, a quantum secure connection, something that's functionally equivalent to QKD but do it without any of the limitations that I described. So, you know, the, the actual demonstration that we did was using a chat bot. I'll tell you, it was no chat GPT. It's not a very good chat <laughs> bot, but it, um, but it, the chat bot really just used as a rest API. So we were able to run, you know, a client, um, for instance, on our laptop that also did this, this one-time pad encryption using our services. Um, and then ran that to uh, data centers on the, you know, the west coast of the U.S., the east coast of the U.S., to London, to Tokyo. Um, and at the time, we were in Hawaii. Um, 
And effectively, you know, I run this on a weekly basis. I set up on the train on the way to DC the other day in a few minutes, running it from New York to, to Melbourne, Australia. So in effect, we're doing a 10,000 mile quantum secure connection. Wow. Um, all on top of existing infrastructure. So when we talk about, oh, you know, you know, an enterprise should first kind of understand where their risks are, you know, we have a way to be able to come in with this type of secure tunnel that's quantum secure and be able to very, in a very targeted way and very surgically be able to put something in place to start to protect those highest value assets. And, and Chris, you, you sort of hinted earlier on in, in our conversation about the difficulty of, of generating random numbers, which I think would probably surprise a lot of people because we sort of think that that everything's random. <laughs> but to get a you know a really good set of random numbers is a is a real technological challenge. And I think that that crypt you you could also supply these random numbers for for applications other than um, cryptography. Can can you give us an idea of what are some of the other applications of of, of your random numbers? Sure. Yeah. So you know, as a as a company. Um, we really think of ourselves as a, as a security company first and like a quantum company. It's like, oh, and by the way, we do quantum. Um, and, and we need to do that quantum because it's a fundamental requirement for cryptography. If you look at, well, okay, but what else can benefit from, ran, you know, from having good random? You know, optimization problems is a, is a, is a great example, something like Monte Carlo. Um, you have an assumption of, I want to be able to sample, you know, using a uniform distribution um, and then sample, you know, a, a, a space um, to be able to then do my computation. And if you're not using random numbers, you're actually influencing the outcome of that optimization problem that you have. Now, the and this starts to get well beyond my own expertise um, because I'm very much focused on the, the crypto and or crypto means cryptography, uh, the, the crypto and security side. But you, you need to start to understand, well, OK, but but how much entropy do I really need given the use case that I'm going after? All right. So I can I can do calculations on the crypto side and, and, and we do to say, all right, we need to you know have this much entropy in the system. So this, you know, once you start doing things like optimization, the question is, well, do I get a better answer if the if the entropy is is better? And I think that can actually lead to some very interesting discussions. And there's a lot of interesting papers on the topic. Um, but other ones just intuitively um, become very obvious as well. It's like, well, man, if I'm gambling, um, you know, or if I'm implementing a gambling system for some other people to gamble, I want to make sure there's no way to cheat this system. Um, so, you know, being able to have entropy for, uh, for gambling uh, is another really important one. Um, and, there's a, and there's a number of others kind of along those lines of, you know, where are those places where, where I do rely on randomness? Um, though it's all, you know, it always trades back to, well, you know, how good does it need to be? You know, one of the interesting things with, if you look at an optimization problem, it's easy to test if you've got a better answer because typically you have some kind of a like a cost function or energy function. So if I run something, you know, with not quite a random source versus run something with a much better quantum entropy source, I should be able to I should be able to show mathematically like, yeah, you know, I got a better answer. So it must be better. Um, 
that's the that can often be the difficulty is understanding and and getting back to and it just honestly a lot of the times it really gets down to do the math um and and full disclosure it's like harder math than i'm able to do um so you've got to find the people that are really able to to dig in and and make that demonstration of given the amount of entropy in the system um am i able to achieve a better result with this and and so what's next for crypt chris um are, are you looking at a sort of a full commercialization of of the product that you've demonstrated yeah absolutely so these are all you know so these these products um in particular the entropy and the key generation those are products that are available today um anyone can go to the website and start and start playing with it um it's like free trial for uh is, is foreseeable future um and you know, kind of play with key generation and that's something, and we're also working with organizations directly to, to secure their data in transit. So we're very focused, you know, as a kind of a core mission, you know, we want to be able to protect the world's information. Um, and focusing on data in transit and this threat that quantum computing is posing is a very, um, you know, a, 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 an important problem that people need to, to work on today. And that's why we're focused on it as well. That said, it's almost an embarrassment of the riches as you look at it, you know, from my side as a, from a product person's perspective, because when we look into the enterprise, like everything is broken, um, you know, not to put too light, a light of tone on it. You know, we were speaking with an analyst uh, a few weeks ago that was not, and I won't name the analyst for reasons that will become apparent in a moment where we were describing the quantum problem you know, within their domain. And they said, well, if that's true, we're all screwed. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is true. And like, we've got to start to take action. Um, so I think the biggest challenge right now for Crypt is really identifying, you know, what do our clients care about securing first and focusing on those first things? Because yes, everything needs to be secured and everything needs to account for this threat. Um, but we're just not able to, to do everything at once. So we're really focused on, you know, what do our clients care about today and, and securing those types of uh, securing those types of workloads and use cases and, and information. Well, that's great, Chris. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for talking about that. Some fascinating stuff. Um, and um, yeah, b best of luck um, at Crypt um, in the future. Well, thank you very much, Hamish. I really enjoyed being on and uh, hope we'll get to do it again. I hope you've enjoyed our recent focus on quantum science and technology. In the previous three episodes of the Physics World Weekly podcast, we looked at the deployment of quantum memories in space, careers for quantum scientists in the defense industry, and the use of quantum sensors to search for physics beyond the standard model. And we also spoke to an organizer of World Quantum Day, which was held on Friday, April the 15th. The latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast also has a quantum theme. Host Andrew Glester chats with the science writer Philip Ball, who attended a recital of quantum music in London and wrote a feature article about this new genre in Physics World. Andrew also speaks to Maria Minoni, who is a composer as well as a theoretical physicist working on quantum information. And of course, 
Andrew played some quantum music. That episode of the Stories podcast is called Quantum Melodies, the intersection of music and quantum physics. And you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. And you can also find Phil Ball's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Can We Use Quantum Computers to Make Music? I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Chris Schnabel and to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be chatting with two astrophysicists, one who has written a folklore-inspired history of the universe and the other who is president of the Australian Institute of Physics. Physics World.